Let's open our Bibles to John's Gospel, the 10th chapter that we began looking at last week, where we found ourselves compared to sheep. And it wasn't very flattering. Sheep, after all, being the kind of dumb creatures that they are, don't do a very good job of caring for themselves, prone to jump off cliffs with 400 of their closest friends. And so we learned some last week about our sheepness, why we need to be led by a shepherd, how the shepherd leads sheep with his voice, where the shepherd leads the sheep to places of safety and satisfaction. And this week, as we continue in chapter 10, we're going to learn more about our shepherd, our good shepherd, as he describes himself. And I expected that we would learn such heading into these verses. It's obvious, right? When Jesus starts out, I am the good shepherd. So I'm not surprised that we're learning about the good shepherd. What I am a bit surprised by in these verses, what I didn't expect so much is that they would instruct us so much concerning the gospel itself. The content of what it is that we believe about who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. I didn't expect how these verses would even be a corrective of sorts for what many falsely teach and call the gospel, which actually turns out to be just an anemic, man-centered, glory-of-God-robbing version of self-help psychology. I hope that piques your interest a little bit. And I want you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd... The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. May the Lord bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. Uh, Father, again, uh, we need help. Uh, You... And your word are far beyond our grasp without assistance. So assist us 
please. Help us to understand how Jesus is the good shepherd. What his shepherding looks like as he brings in the sheep. As he knows the sheep. Would you help us to see all of your glory in this? Would you help us to find and take great comfort and confidence in and hope in all that we see here today? To the praise of your name, to your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want us to evaluate Jesus' claim of being the good shepherd in two broad categories, two sort of umbrella ideas in this passage that that tell us about his shepherdness. Last week was about our sheepness. This week is about his shepherdness, but they also reveal and affirm great truths about the gospel, the real gospel, according to Jesus, that if we know it and if we sink our teeth into it, We'll begin to love it and glory in it. And whenever someone else teaches anything else, a weak, watered-down, self-help gospel, it will be glaringly obvious to us. We'll say, that's not the gospel. And we'll reject it for what it is. So, two broad categories. Plus, at the end, I want to consider what's at stake in all of this. First category, how the good shepherd sacrifices himself as our substitute. Second category, how he sovereignly knows and gathers his sheep. Uh, And then again, we'll conclude with what's at stake here. What's the big deal? There's an outline in your worship folder if that's helpful. So let's go with the first category. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. What does Jesus mean by that? What about your shepherding, Jesus, makes you the, definite article, good shepherd? Well, he explains. He gives the defining characteristic of his shepherding that qualifies him to be the good shepherd, and that is that he lays down his life for the sheep. Now, that's an interesting thing for a shepherd to do. It almost causes this whole sheep-shepherd metaphor to break down a bit. Now, I'm sure that on occasion, shepherds lost their lives while tending the sheep. A bear, some other wild animal comes and attacks, overpowers and kills the shepherd. That would be a terrible tragedy. Certainly an unintended outcome. Definitely not the intention of the shepherd Not what he set out to do that morning when he went to call the flock and said, hey, I'm going to go out here with them. That was not his plan. That would be a counterproductive thing for the shepherd to be killed and then the sheep to be left exposed and vulnerable and easy prey for the predators. Those shepherds did not set out to die for their sheep. But in our passage today, we see that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Not merely risking his life for the sheep, but laying it down. And it has very good scriptural warrant. There are ample references throughout 
the Old Testament, the prophetic writings that pointed to Messiah's self-sacrifice. So this is not completely out of the blue. So Jesus, the good shepherd, is laying down his life for the sheep. He is sacrificing himself. His death is a sacrifice. The assumption here is that the sheep are in mortal danger, but somehow his death, his laying down his life, his sacrificing his life, somehow that will save the sheep from their deaths. So first we see that Jesus' death as the good shepherd is a sacrifice, but it is also a substitution. Look at this closely. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life in place of the sheep. He lays it down instead of the sheep, on behalf of the sheep. The sheep were going to die, but instead Jesus dies. In their place. He substitutes himself. As the good shepherd, Jesus' death is a sacrifice. It is a substitute. Next thing we see, it's a costly sacrifice. Verses 12 and 13, uh, he's comparing himself to to the hired help, right? Someone who's who's not really invested in the situation. Someone someone who's not going to put themselves in harm's way. When danger comes, they're out of here. Verse 12, when he sees the wolf coming. Well, guess what, friends? Jesus sees the wolf coming. He knows what's going to happen. He knows how much pain will be inflicted. He knows what it will cost him. He knows the shame, the humiliation. But he's not a hired hand. He's the good shepherd. And so instead of fleeing, he faces it head on. He could have fled He had every right to flee. He could have said, no, these sheep aren't worth it. These sheep have been my enemies. They've been rebelling against me from creation. They deserve to die. I don't deserve to die. He was not under obligation to sacrifice himself, to substitute himself, but Unlike the hired hand in verse 13 who cares nothing for the sheep, the good shepherd cares for the sheep in a manner that defies comprehension. And rather than flee, rather than assert his rights that he doesn't have to do this, he willingly does it. Verse 18. In in no uncertain terms. No one is taking Jesus' life from him. We've already seen him several times in this gospel. Slipping through the fingers of the religious leaders when they wanted to arrest him. When they wanted to stone him. When they wanted to take him by force. No one has power over Jesus. No one backs him into a corner and says, aha, there's no way out for you. 
He allows himself to be accused and tried and declared guilty and led away to die. He allows himself to be hung on a cross, side-pierced, buried. But gloriously, we know that wasn't the end. Because not only did Jesus, the Good Shepherd, willingly lay down his life at great cost to himself, he also took it up again. Now this is an astonishing claim for him to make. It's got to be part of the reason that they just think he's cuckoo. Because anybody can say, I'm going to lay my life down. Right? Anybody can take their life. But who would dare claim that they could undo the laying down of their life? But you see, both are absolutely essential for us. He's got to lay it down. Someone has to die in the place of the sheep. Someone has to die in our place because of our sin and rebellion. We deserve to die. That's our just and deserved punishment for failing to keep God's law. But we don't just need someone to die for us. We also need someone to give us life. And that's exactly what Jesus does when he takes his life up again. When he rises from the dead on the third day, he rises as a victorious conqueror who has forever defeated sin and death. The grave could not Hold him. It had no power over him, which means it will have no power over us, his sheep, for whom he died and rose again. So that's our first category. Right? The good shepherd sacrificed himself costly, willingly, victoriously as our substitute. Now, there's a second category. The good shepherd sovereignly knows and gathers his sheep. Now, there are some explanations of the gospel out there. There are some analogies and illustrations of the gospel out there that are just really bad. Right? There's one maybe you've heard. I'm not going to give you the whole thing. Uh, A father who is a, a drawbridge operator. Right, and he either has to sacrifice his son who's wandered out there on the bridge, or he has to sacrifice a train load of, of people. It's just a horrendous illustration because these types of things picture the death of Christ as some kind of plan B, as some kind of knee-jerk reaction of God to a world gone wrong that has spiraled and spun out of control. But the biblical account is anything but knee-jerk. It's not an afterthought. It's not plan B. The clear picture of Scripture is that the Good Shepherd sacrifices something the Father and the Son, together with the Spirit, planned. And we're very much in control of at every point in History. We see a couple of pointers of that here in, in these verses. Verse 17. It might seem odd to you to hear, that G, to hear Jesus say that the Father loves him essentially because of his obedience, because of his laying down his life for the sheep. 
But that should not be odd at all. It was their plan together, their eternal purpose, that the Father would send the Son that He might rescue the sheep. We see another little pointer again at the end of verse 18. That I do all this, Jesus says, is the charge of the Father to the Son for Him to faithfully Fulfilled. No, this is no knee-jerk reaction. It's all beautifully planned before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us. And every aspect of that plan and the fulfilling of that plan is under the sovereign control of God the Father and His Son, the Good Shepherd. Now, here's where I think this gets interesting. Here's where I think this takes us a little deeper into what the Gospel is. Jesus, the good shepherd, sovereignly knows the sheep. Look at verse 14. I know my own. Right? Good shepherds know their sheep from other sheep. I know my own and they know me. Remember last week, lots of shepherd, uh, lots of sheep in this communal pen. And a shepherd arrives and he, with his particular specific voice and call, and certainly by calling the sheep by name, he calls just his sheep and just his sheep come out. The sheep that belong to all the other shepherds, they stay put. Jesus knows who his sheep are and they respond to his voice. Now, verse 16, let's add another layer to this. Jesus says, oh wait, I've got more sheep. I've got these sheep and I've got some other sheep. It's not just here from this pen, right? And so what he's referring to is the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. I've got sheep who are Israelites and I've got sheep who aren't Israelites. I've got sheep, in fact, from every tribe and language and nation, the scriptures tell us. The Old Testament is clear that God's people will be called from the nations, from the ends of the earth. He will draw and call them. So historically, that's what's at work here in verse 16, is this inclusion of the Gentiles. Uh, But we need to look a little more closely and see what else is being said here. So let's let's read this carefully. I have, present tense, other sheep, not of this fold, that I must bring also. Right? Notice that it's I, Jesus says. I bring them. And he says also, I must bring them also. Just like I brought the sheep out of this pen, I'm going to bring the sheep out of those pens as well. And they will listen to my voice. It's like some kind of guarantee or something. It's going to happen. I'm going to bring them. They're going to listen to my voice. So Jesus says, I have, present tense, other sheep that I've not yet brought. I have to bring them. They're not yet here. But he calls them sheep already. I have sheep. Not, I'm going to bring them and then they're going to become sheep. No, they're mine already. They're my sheep. I just got to bring them. 
So here's where the gospel seems increasingly clear to me from this passage, from this verse especially. Because there's a version of the gospel offered out there, taught out there, where Jesus died on the cross. So that's good. We're off to a good start. But who he's died for, well, that's somewhat ambiguous. We're not really sure yet. He kind of died for everybody, but then we kind of got to see who responds. Because in this version of the gospel, his dying only makes salvation possible. It's a possibility if the message of that gospel should fall on receptive ears. If the offer of that gospel should find some hearts that are somehow willing, well, then salvation moves from possibility to reality. So in that version of the gospel, it's a real possibility that there might not be any willing. There might not be any receptive out there. And wouldn't that have been a shame for Jesus to die For nothing. For his death to be a failure. Because no one was willing. No one was receptive. In that version of the gospel, Jesus made salvation possible by dying on the cross, rising from the dead. But it is willing and receptive hearts that make it a reality. If if you'll just be willing to ask Jesus into your heart. Right? You've got a Savior there just, oh, pleading, oh, would you please? See, it's the asking that saves. It's not the dying and rising that saves. It's the receptiveness and the willingness that act, that's actually what makes salvation a reality. And it grieves me, y'all, it grieves me that that watered-down non-gospel is heard so often and goes down so smoothly and easily. But friends, let me ask you, just from these verses, we could go a hundred other places, just from these verses, does this look like the good shepherd is making salvation possible? Or does it sound like the good shepherd is accomplishing Salvation. Let's review verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Y'all, that's not ambiguous. That's very specific. Who's Jesus dying for? The sheep. Who's he not dying for? Those that ain't the sheep. Who are, well, who are the sheep? Verse 14. The ones that he knows and that know him back. Well, how do they know him back? Verse 16. He's going to bring in the sheep and they will listen to his voice. Not they might. Not, ooh, we hope there are some going to be some people out there who listen to the voice of Jesus. Ooh, I hope... Hope the voice of Jesus falls on some willing and some receptive ears. No, my sheep will listen to my voice because they're already mine. From before the beginning of time, when my father chose them, 
and he gives them to me. Do you remember we've already seen this a bit in in John chapter 6, 37 through 39? All that the Father gives me will come to me. How many? All. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Y'all, the Father's work in giving the sheep to Jesus is very effective. Actually, it's 100%. Okay? Jesus' work as the good shepherd at bringing his sheep in and holding on to them and losing none of them, also very effective. Also 100%. They will listen to my voice, he says. See, they don't listen and become sheep. They listen because they already are sheep. You you don't believe the gospel and become a lamb of God. You believe the gospel because you're his lamb since before time. And if you want to put a theological label on that that gives people heartburn, it's called election. See, this is the biblical gospel. Jesus didn't die ambiguously for potential sheep that might or might not be willing and receptive to hearing about his death for them and trusting in it. Jesus died specifically sacrificially, as a substitute for his sheep. Sheep given to him by the Father, sheep chosen by the Father. And when Jesus dies, he doesn't make salvation possible for them. He accomplishes it. He lays down his life. He takes it up again, and it's done. All that's left to be done is for the sheep to be brought in by Jesus through the working of his Spirit. We should go back to chapter 3 of this gospel where he's talking about the work of the Spirit. you got to be born again. So what's happening there? He's bringing in his sheep. He uses his Spirit to do it whereby he overcomes all of our unwillingness to come to him. Friends, that's the thing. If the gospel is just put out there and, oh, we hope somebody's going to be willing, guess what? No one is. There's not a willing person out there. We've already seen, I've taken, taken you to it a million times, in the third chapter, verse 19 of this gospel. The light came, but what happened? People loved what instead? Y'all are listening. They loved darkness instead. And that love of darkness has to be overcome. It has to be overcome by a miraculous working of God's Spirit. So in verse 16 talks about Jesus bringing them in. That's what he's talking about. Sheep aren't going to come on their own. They've got to be brought in. Our unwillingness has to be overcome. Our blind eyes, where were we last? Chapter 9. Our blind eyes have to be healed so that we can see the beautiful offer of the gospel. We'll never see it otherwise. Jesus, our good shepherd, sovereignly knows and brings in the sheep. Now, what's at stake? What's at stake? 
Why do we need the robust biblical gospel in these verses as opposed to this watered down anemic gospel that so many want to offer of, of an impotent Jesus that's just wringing his hands and hoping. He's made salvation possible. Will you make it a reality? Two very important things are at stake. The first, the most important, is the glory of God. Before the beginning of time as we know it, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit plan together how they would call a people to themselves. A people that didn't deserve to be called, a people that wasn't the greatest, they weren't the strongest, they weren't the best, They wanted to call to themselves a people that they could redeem and ransom and rescue. They planned from eternity how the Father would send the Son and how the Son would obediently, willingly lay His life down for this people, for these sheep, accomplishing their redemption. They planned how the Spirit would apply that redeeming work to them opening their blind eyes, overcoming their unwillingness, granting them the faith necessary to believe this is their work. Start to finish. And to insist somehow that we inject ourselves into their work. Thinking, well, it wouldn't be right if we didn't have a say in the matter or a part to play or something to contribute, that just doesn't seem fair to us. That seems to do injury to our autonomy. To inject ourselves into their work is to rob the triune God of the glory solely due to those three persons. Second thing that's at stake, also important, not as important, is our confidence and hope. This gospel, completely accomplished by God start to finish, through Jesus bringing in the sheep by means of His Spirit, not based on our willingness or receptiveness. Folks, if this thing depended on our willingness, Number one, it would never happen because we're not willing. But for argument's sake, let's say that it could. If it depended on our willingness to get in, then our willingness or a recent flare-up of unwillingness could take us out. If the reality of our salvation depended on us, we could just as easily lose it as we could secure it. There's another layer of hope and confidence here that I hope many of you hear and say, ooh, thank you for that. Because you've been spending time with friends and neighbors and maybe some family members. And you think, they're... Their blindness is so acute. It's so thorough. Their unwillingness 
to even hear what I'm saying, to engage with me. It, it is, oh, it is wearying to me. It's causing me to lose hope. The other confidence here is for our evangelism. Jesus has other sheep. They're out there. He's going to bring them in. He's chosen to use us as ambassadors and emissaries and his agents. And his sheep that are out there will hear his voice. He will bring them in. We can have great confidence that our work, our labor, is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, I've made bold statements about the nature and the reality of the gospel this morning. Father, would you cause any of those statements to pass from our memories where they do not line up with the sum total of your revealed will in Scripture? But Father, where they do line up, if they do, then by the power of your Spirit, would you sear them into our hearts, and our minds. For your glory, for our confidence, for our ability in the future when we hear something less, something watered down, something assigning glory to man instead of you, we would reject it and we'd be ready to proclaim in its place the gospel of grace that exalts the Lord Jesus, our good shepherd. That rightfully shows all that you have done for us. So you'll be praised and you'll receive the glory. Now and always, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.